Talking time with Lucas and Alicia is excited to announce our proud sponsors, Code Sydney. Um, Lucas, tell us a little bit about Code Sydney. Code Sydney is a web and online uh, marketing tool group that put together uh, websites and social media platforms for charity organisations and not-for-profits. They give the opportunity for um, brand new developers to develop their skills while helping the community do what they do. How do people get in contact with our new sponsor, Code Sydney? Yeah, so you can check out Code Sydney on www.code.sydney. Um, have a look at everything they do, um, including the support for non-for-profit organisations and their mentorship through that as well. Hey, don't forget they did our website, which is www.talkingtimepodcast.com.au. Check it out. And if uh, you need some help with your website as a not-for-profit or group out there, reach out to Code Sydney. Thanks for your supporting Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia. It's that time of the week again. It is Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia, except... It is Halloween and it's good to see you've already got your outfit on leash. I was going to say the same to you, Lucas. Like I didn't know we were going all out, but you got the Uncle Fester uh, <laughs> costume down hat. Look at you go. I like it. And then you got the Elvira hat on. So we're all looking good. We're all doing it together. Hey, it's good. How you doing, mate? What did you, uh, what did you get up to for, what do you get up to for Halloween? As you know, it's always um, a pretty big at my place. All the kids, you know, come around. Uh, costumes galore it's uh epic fantastic now mate we've got a guest today who we're going to ask about halloween because we have to but this is a, a colleague and someone who i think is uh um an amazing uh, amazing human being in this field and does a lot of stuff um that is just a little left field of some of the guys that are generally our mainstream listeners and it is uh cole mulrooney and he's from the university of new england he is the co-director of the Centre for Rural Criminology. Kyle, how are you doing tonight, my friend? Good, mate. How are you? Thank you for the kind words. Mate, now, hey, before we even get into it, we we've, we've can clearly tell there's a little bit of an accent there. So we're going to say that it's from where, my friend, and tell us what you would be normally doing in Halloween back where that uh, accent comes from. Fair enough. It's from Canada, Toronto particularly, well, in and, in and around Toronto. And Halloween's a big deal back home. I've... Uh, I've been away from home for about a decade now. I did my PhD throughout Europe and been in Australia almost four years now. And um, I miss Halloween. It's not as, as big of a deal over here or in, in the UK as it is back home. All the kids get dressed up, all the adults get dressed up, and it's a, it's a big time of year, so, so I'm missing it. Or maybe I'm just be... getting old and I'm missing all the parties because I just don't go to them anymore. <laughs> hey, parenthood will do that to you, man. The kids have got a bit of social life than, uh, than we That's do. It. Yeah, what would be one of the traditions that you would probably miss the most or that you used to do growing up in, in, in Halloween when you're growing up in Canada? Yeah, well, trick-or-treating, obviously. Everyone wants candy and uh, trick-or-treating is the big deal, picking your, your outfit for that year. Um, it's fun as you progress into you know adulthood. There's all those costume parties and things like that. Everyone tries to one-up each other. So it's a good time and I, I miss it. I miss it dearly. Mate, well, wish we could talk Halloween all day, but we've got to get into we've got to get into the reason we got you to come on the show. Now, 
you are co-director of the Center for Rural Criminology. So, Kyle, we don't um, we don't own anyone's lived experience on this show. We let everyone tell their tell their story. Can you give us a little bit of a background as to how you got into this, and more importantly, what is rural criminology? Okay, okay. Um, I've got quite an eclectic uh, profile there. Um, I'm I'm really do research in the field of the sociology of punishment, which just looks at explanations for variations in punishment. I really do cross-country comparative stuff. So comparative criminology is what my PhD was in, um, particularly looking in how um, a jurisdiction's political culture might influence how it responds to crime and offending. Um, I got very, very weighed down and bogged down as most PhD students do by their one topic. And so I played a lot of high level sports growing up and I ventured into the human enhancement drug space because I saw a lot of steroid use and things like that going on. So I've done actually a lot of bulk of my research in human enhancement drugs and really in the sociology of enhancement and things like that. Now I came to UNE and UNE itself has a very, very long history of rural criminology dating back to the late seventies. Um, and so I got to talking with folks like Elaine Barclay, uh, who was at UNE, she's now emeritus or retired, sorry, um, Joe Donemeyer and a few of those folks out in the United States. Um, and we just got to chatting about kind of reviving that, 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 that rural criminological identity at UNE. And so I really took that ball and ran with it. Luckily, I've had a great support structure over there to be able to do so. And kind of the rest is history. Since 2018, we've really just been uh, moving from project to project and, and, and really flowing really well in the center. So lots of things forthcoming. So for the people, so for the, the listeners out there, what for the simple layman's terms. So what is rural criminology? Are we talking about crime on the land? Are we talking about crime to farmers? Are we talking about all the above? What yeah, does it yeah. look like? Well, well, you, you kind of got half of it. And I think that's what everyone gravitates to, right? Quintessential rural crimes, farm crime, agricultural crime, these types of things. And that is half the story. But rural criminology, what I think a lot of people miss out on is everyone does it more or less they just don't realize it and so for instance we started the international society for the study of rural crime and i'd say oh god upwards of 90 percent of our members wouldn't identify as rural criminologists they might be drug researchers or uh, study penology or prisons and punishment and all the other half of rural criminology is about is applying a rural criminological lens to these particular topics so what that means for instance is looking at how locational context or um, elements of cultural geography might shape particular types of crime so let's take domestic violence for example there's many particulars and characteristics of a rural environment which would shape not only the incidence of that particular crime but also how that crime's responded to the you know best example of that would be just simply access to related services um maybe some socio-cultural elements of shame uh, or uh, relationship densities that might discourage one from reporting these types of offending so that's rural criminology in a nutshell it's kind of got that one half that looks at quint quintessentially rural issues uh, and then that other half which really just applies a rural criminological lens to a myriad of traditional criminological issues and crimes so bringing, looking at Australia's geography and obviously the work you're doing here is that that would open the door to some pretty diverse conversations with some of the small towns, some of the extended groups, the Indigenous, potentially Indigenous involvement in some of the, uh, the land areas. Would, would, would that be a fair comment? Or what are, some of the, what are some of the thoughts about that or one of some of the things that you've uncovered in your work here in Australia in that space? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of our focus thus far, at least my own, has been on the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey 2020, which just so happens is releasing tomorrow, finally, um, to hopefully a lot of fanfare. So there'll be a lot of good outcomes with that. So in terms of engagement, um, that was really surreal. Um, you know, quantitative measures can be very detached at times. Um, and, you know, you can kind of miss the forest for the trees and, and, and miss a lot of things. But Luckily, you know, as human research ethics would have it, I had to attach my phone number to the, the the call for this survey and farmers as they do would just ring me up. And so I probably had 10 or 20 calls of farmers. <laughs> I'd, be on the, I'd be on the phone with them for an hour and a half, two hours sometimes, just, you know, shooting the shit, just having a conversation about life on the land and the crimes that have impacted them or their families or things like that. And that really helped, particularly in the write-up of this quantitative data, while it wasn't kind of research-oriented and, and, and uh, sort of... Um, evidence-based, these kind of anecdotal conversations at least put a face or a voice or, or some feeling to the, to the data. And so, you know, for instance, people often scoff at rural crime, you know, it's particularly farm crime, for instance, right? Like who cares if you get a couple of cows stolen? I mean, it's not a big deal when you compare it to, you know, other more violent types of crime. But I think we lose a lot of that rural context again. First of all, a couple of cows can be one's livelihood and a lot of money, particularly these days as the cost yes. of these things skyrocket. The other part is a lot of these individuals are in the middle of absolutely nowhere and things that you and I and others take for granted, in particular, the fact that we can ring up the police and expect a rather immediate response when we're in trouble, they don't have. And so when you have strangers, uh, you know, about on your property, stealing things and things like that, it can add that extra element that's there regardless, but I think is accentuated in the rural of uh, a psychological element and, and, and anxiety element to crime and criminal offending. And so one anecdote was talking to one farmer who, you know, she said the the lights came on on her shed and she, you know, pe peeked out the porch and saw someone running around the shed. And she said for the next three weeks, she'd get up at two in the morning and just check, you know, oh. and it was probably nothing. It was probably just some kid or just something silly, you know, someone you know, just trespassing or whatever, nothing major. But she had three kids in the home. I think her partner was away. And so it's just that psychological element that really woke her up every night just to have a peek. And she said, she just kept ruminating over it. Like, why was that person there? Like, what's the point and what's going on and checking over the stuff. And again, it might sound very, very minor, but in the context of stress generally, you know, it just really adds an extra layer on the cake, particularly to farmers who are facing, you know, drought, bushfires, floods, mice plagues, and the rest of it. So... Are we seeing a bit of an increase in um, the the rural crime with the changes to weather, like with all the drought, fire and flood that we have been seeing over the past 12 to 18 months? Yeah, so you see different types of offences, right? You see stock theft lower, but that's a bit of a game of numbers. The reason why stock theft lowers is because a lot of people get rid of their stock, uh, particularly during the severe drought we had. So there's just not as much access to you know, tangible targets as traditionally. But you'll see other fences increase, like water theft, right? Because water becomes an ever more precious commodity. It already is a precious commodity, uh, but increasingly so. So you do see increases in other types of fences, a lot of affinity fraud, so a lot of um, attempts to rip off farmers in need, uh, i.e. selling hay. I, I know there's one case I was talking to the police about, you know, and not providing that or selling other services of, of people that are clearly in need and taking advantage of that kind of distressing situation. We're also looking into doing some research into disasters and disaster management generally as arguably environmental change and these types of things affect rural spaces quite significantly. Um, and the crimes that are associated with that, whether it's around uh, kind of looting and arson and these types of things during bushfires, um, the differences between these types of behaviors and floods and bushfires and, and these types of things. So 
I think weather um, definitely, of course, shapes, shapes crime and criminal offending in a myriad of ways, especially for farmers. This might be a left field question and maybe even a stupid question. Do you see, do you see similarities between um, the, 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 the crime profiles um, throughout different states and territories in Australia? Um, or is it similar or is there a similar theme across all? And apologize, apologies if that's a, a really silly question. No, by no means. First, I'll say I'm not the expert in this. I'm, I'm still learning uh, <laughs> where Armadale is uh, on the Australian map. So <laughs> I, I think I fairly mastered New South Wales. I got an idea about Queensland. Uh, I know South Australia plays some funny sport and, you know, I'm getting there on these types of things. But in terms of, of, of crime and, and offending, yeah, you definitely see these patterns of farm crime everywhere. I mean, Australia is one of the kind of, I guess we can call it Western advanced nation that has actually retained quite a significant uh, agricultural culture and economic uh, capacity. And so there are great opportunities for these types of offenses. I mean, some massive stock thefts in the thousands, you know, coming out of Queensland just last month. Um, I've had uh, police from um, South Australia, from Tasmania, from New Zealand, uh, from all over contact us about this farm crime research that hadn't been done there. I think you might know uh, Dr. Alistair Harkness, my colleague and co-director of the center. He did research a few years back in Victoria uh, when he was working out there. And we find very similar findings. You'll have your local dynamics, you know, your state-based dynamics as anywhere. You're going to have your dynamics within uh, New South Wales, depending on the type of farming that's going on. Obviously, stock theft will be concentrated in those areas. They tend to carry a significant amount of stock. Um, different dynamics on policing. For instance, the New South Wales Police Rural Crime Prevention Team is, I'd arguably say, one of the kind of leaders in the world at this uh, tackling farm crime uh, specifically. And so they've They've definitely led the way nationally. Um, I know they employed this um, um, proactive policing operation called Operation Stock Check, uh, which is basically just ensuring that stock that is traveling to and fro is uh, actually in tag registered and is identifiable um, um, and, and possessed by the person carrying it. And I think almost every jurisdiction picked that up, bar the ones who um, had legal limitations on the capacity to pull people over. And I think there was only one or two of those. So um, definitely varying dynamics, definitely varying dynamics in how this is being addressed and the amount of resources being put into the problem with New South Wales leading the way in that regard. Victoria, for instance, has agricultural liaison officers, which uh, do some of this work, but it's one part of a larger policing portfolio. Whereas in New South Wales, we have actually dedicated rural crime prevention officers. I think that makes a bit of a difference. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the work you're currently doing in the Rural Crime Centre? So what's a normal day look like for you? Yeah, so we just closed out that New South Wales Farm Crime Survey. Um, mm -hmm. That oh, was interesting. We started it just before COVID hit. The plan was to go hard copy because... Um, History would tell us that farmers uh, would be more likely to fill in a hard copy survey and actually post it, believe it or not. Um, I wouldn't know how to do that. But uh, we had to pivot and switch. Um, I think that was a bit scary because we thought, ah, this is the end of it because Alistair, for instance, tried to do that in Victoria to save money. It'll save you about 10 grand if you can run a survey uh, online. Um, and he had very little success in uptake of the survey, just because it's so hard to get the word out there to these communities that you want to take it. Mind you, four years in the internet of things is quite a, you know, uh, a lot happens in that time. So I imagine farmers are, are increasingly uh, uptaking these surveys and our survey showed that. 
But one benefit particularly was just the sheer networks. So we had, um, you know, the New South Wales Police Service helping us, Farmers Association, uh, local land services, a bunch of different local government areas all help us get this word out to farmers and spread this information. And so that kind of networking and kind of community uh, work in, in, in um, disseminating the survey was, was absolutely amazing. So we did really well with that. That finally releases tomorrow, um, where there'll be a kind of smaller, more palatable report uh, aimed at industry, a much larger, um, uh, heavy, heavy, heavy going report uh, with a lot of information in there. A lot of reading. Yeah, a lot of reading, a lot of contextualizing, and then the video that we've we've produced to kind of try to repackage that in a different format, uh, where people can uh, watch and, and hopefully get some of the solid outcomes from there. Now, in addition to that, we've kind of have quite a large report, uh, research portfolio. So we've got about 100 research associates from all over the world. Uh, we have about five or six internally um, at UNE uh, working uh, with and through the Center for Rural Criminology. And so we've got colleagues, Dr. Katinka Vandeven, doing research on alcohol and drug treatment and how COVID has impacted that, and particularly how COVID has impacted the access to these services in rural spaces. Um, so that's one project. I've got a PhD student actually, um, um, uh, she's an indigenous student doing research on the role of prejudice in the criminal justice system, particularly at um, the um, uh, re-entry phase in rural spaces. Uh, so really, really interesting stuff coming out as that project develops. Um, uh, her, her research is really, really fascinating and there's a lot of promise there. Um, and we've got a few other projects going. We've got the international policing project looking at how um, policing in rural spaces is done the world over. So this is in conjunction with researchers and research associates in uh, England, as well as France. So just looking at how these dynamics of rural policing vary uh, um, in these uh, particular jurisdictions. Um, and a few other projects kind of uh, fizzling away on the back burner. Oh, we have a, a really good one, a really interesting one actually coming up on um, smart animal ear tags and their capacity to prevent stock theft. So one of the primary problems in the rural space, I know rational choice theory definitely has its criticisms, uh, but it's very useful, particularly in the rural context where there really is high rewards and very, very low risks of being caught just by proxy of the environment. Absolutely. You know, a farmer doesn't check on his stock you know, for a couple months it's, it's, it's really, really difficult to, to introduce those pinch points to even target hard in certain things in the rural space. So there's some really, really promising, uh, at least hypothetical and theoretical uh, concepts and, and applications for these tags to reduce uh, dramatically, I think, stock theft altogether. So lots going on in the center. There's probably five or six projects that, that I've, I've failed to, to, to cover, <laughs> um, but there's lots going on there. It's, it's really been a really good um opportunity to to focus this research in that space uh, we're very lucky to pick up alistair for instance i mean he's got about you know four or five edited collections i think coming through uh, the pipeline all on different elements of of virality and crime and so lots of research and a lot of activity coming out of the center fantastic hey. so for some of our listeners um just a, a bit of an explanation what happens at the end of those projects so you've gone out um done your surveys you've got your research you've got your stats Who's using those reports? So what happens from that point on? Yeah, so that was one of the big purposes of the center for me. Um, I was lucky I was really brought up with that mentality through my PhD and things like that. Um, my um, 
my uh, uh, supervisor, uh, um, uh, Roger Matthews, is a very kind of well-known, uh, dare I say, famous uh, um, left realist criminologist and, and really was one of the originators of this theoretical strand of criminology. And uh, having conversations with him were so influential, but one of the big things, and I think he, he wrote a whole article called So What Criminology, um, and he'd always ask me that, so what? You know, so what? What's the point of this? You can't just say things, or I just found this, so what, right? Like, draw this out, like, tell me how it's usable. Tell and so I've really carried that with me throughout. And so in developing even the proposal for the center, that was one of the points is that this is, this is going to be, you know, a research first center, but it's a center that is, that its research will be practical, um, applicable and usable by those who need it most. Um, and so particularly with the farm crime survey, you know, we've tried to partner as best we can to share this information. Not only are we disseminating it in you know, four different ways to try to reach different types of audiences, but we'll target specific uh, users like Farmers Federation, like the police. We've already engaged really well with the police and Crime Stoppers together. I mean, the data that came out of that survey was uh, very influential as forming the basis of the uh, new Crime Stoppers campaign called Draw the Line on Regional Crime. Uh, and, and so we want, that's the type of things we want to see is this data actually used for policy purposes in the report. If, if people go have a look at it, um, uh, just Google New South Wales Farm Crime Survey 2020, there was a not only about a you know 15 page write up trying to contextualize these findings, but there at the very bottom, you'll find key recommendations, uh, particularly with investing in particular policing opportunities, but also investing in farmers and rural communities and how we can actually take the next tangible steps a lot of those research projects I rattled off are very much set up to help solve the problems that have come out of the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey as well. So it's not like, you know, we do something, we get the academic publications out of it, and we're ready to move on. Uh, we're really cognizant of that history in academia, and, and we're very careful to ensure that not only is information shared and exchanged, uh, but that each project, uh, at least the effort is to have a practical, tangible outcome. That's brilliant. With with regards to um, your PhD students, please open invitation to any of your PhD students to come on here. Yeah, I think we talked about Caitlin. I imagine she'd love to have a chat. Um, she's super bright and uh, she actually worked in um, two prison systems, uh, one in Queensland and one in New South Wales. And that's really what kind of catalyzed this drive to look at prejudice. I mean, um, she experienced a lot of different commentary, observed a lot of different things that was quite clearly setting people up to fail in her mind. Yep. And so she really wanted to look at this, this concept of prejudice, you know, and, and how this works in terms of how people feel about offenders, um, particularly, particularly looking at punitive attitudes. And I guess, you know, to, to package it in short, you know, um, if people blame kind of individual moral blameworthiness and kind of blame that kind of individual. And that usually would lead to more individualized forms of punishment, i.e. more punitive forms of punishment, retribution and the like, versus, uh, and again, these are shades of gray, not black and white, but I'll present them as black and white, versus a more sociological understanding of offending that looks at, you know, a myriad of factors that might influence, encourage and shape offending and offending behavior. And people who would subscribe to you know, a more sociological view of offending would tend to also um, support more rehabilitative ideals and opportunities for kind of communal investment in desistance from crime. And so she's looking at how these factors also play together with Aboriginality in the Australian context. How do people view offenders, but then how do they view um, 
Aboriginal offenders specifically? Is there kind of redemption stories and narratives and opportunities there? And then also following that through to the back end through qualitative uh, interviews with um, um, people who, uh, young offenders in Aboriginal communities that have offended in rural spaces and talking to them about their journey uh, right through uh, from arrest through the criminal justice system in prison and particularly in their experience with uh, kind of reintegrating back into the rural spaces and rural communities. What do you see, uh, you've sort of alluded to this a little bit with that, what you just said then, and also with some of the other things you mentioned. What do you see as the importance of, of lived experience in all of this, every form of criminology, every form of crime prevention, or every, pro, pro, what, what's, does it have a role in your mind? And if so, what would that role be? Yeah, I mean, I think it has a, has a direct role. I've seen it directly with farmers. I mean, they can tell me things, uh, through experience that I could never begin to imagine. And so there's a very, very important role there. Um, and researchers, particularly absent lived experience, um, have to take the blinders off and be open to these types of conversations and opportunities. You know, for instance, even on these these issues with Caitlin and, and, and discussing her research with her, you know, there's a lot of things that I probably not necessarily wouldn't agree with, but it wouldn't be my first kind of my first kind of starting point to think about something. But hearing her contextualize it from usually an experiential standpoint, um, if she hasn't gone into the literature and theory yet, really, really offers an alternative outlook for me and really allows me to explore kind of my own biases or my own what's shaping my own perspectives around particular problems. Um, so I definitely see, you know, a core place for it. We see it, especially in the United States. I mean, you'll know better than I am, but uh, the growth of convict criminology in the criminological space and, and opening those doors to, you know, a variety of individuals with varying levels of lived experience. My partner, for instance, does research on drug use and re rehabilitation. Very difficult to come up with solutions without talking to people who have been through, you know, these types of programs and have experienced uh, uh, particular types of health issues around substance uh, uh, use. Uh, and so it's definitely, definitely important. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's very important. Love it. Love it. Hey, Alicia, do you um, want to have a quick finish off with our great man here? Yeah, we would love to keep talking um, for hours, uh, but unfortunately, we're, we're pressed for time. So um, we'll have to wrap it up there. If anybody wants to get in contact with you or if um, they're interested in collaboration with the Centre or any of your projects, how, how can they do that? Yeah, directly. Uh, K Mulroon, they drop the E and the Y. I'm not sure why, but it's K Mulroon at une.edu.au. Um, the Centre's Rucrim like rural crime, rucrim at une.edu.au. Um, yeah, anyone interested at all in rural criminology uh, um, um, from, from any perspective or criminology in general, uh, always very happy to chat. Wonderful. We'll put those details up on our socials. Um, awesome. Hey, I've got to say, uh, and Kyle is, uh, I, I feel lucky to be able to message Kyle or send Kyle an email when we need to, but Kyle's, I've worked together with Kyle um, at UNE. He gave me the chance to present um, a unit and and worked well with him. And uh, it's some of the stuff that some of the stuff that UNE doing in criminology um, is great. You know, the ability to space lived experience and incorporating this rural criminology stuff is is, is fantastic too. And there's a great bunch of uh, educators working at that space, so it's a uh, a good place to be involved in. And thank you so much personally, mate, for uh, for coming on and for everything you've done for me over the journey. 
Yeah, no problem. If I can just say one last thing that I that I left off, not to extend your listeners too long. It is talking time, and I know the focus is is a bit more on on uh, um, uh, these types of issues around prisons and, and and reintegration and stuff like that. One area that's sorely lacking and that you should think about, or at least talk to people about, I think, is those uh, issues of of reentry in rural spaces and what that looks like and how the rural very much um, can discourage. Uh, desistance from crime for a myriad of reasons from the cultural to the very basics access to services you know that tyranny of distance is very true uh, it's very true in people seeking treatment for uh, uh, drug uh, mis- substance misuse disorders and things like that and it's very true for people coming out of prison uh, where they don't have the equal access to the same types of services is very true in access to justice period where you're much more likely to go to prison, for instance, simply because there are no alternative options all the way through to reentry back into the rural space. And I know they've done some really good research in this regard in the United States, but I, I, at least to my knowledge, and I hope someone will correct me if I'm wrong, I find it sorely lacking here. And it's been something that's been on the back of my mind for so long, uh, going back to my research in penology and definitely something that I think someone really needs to, to pick up and take a closer look at. It's really, really, it's almost um, kismet that you say that is our previous guest, uh, Kathy, is actually a, a previously incarcerated female and has returned to rural and regional Victoria and is struggling with exactly what you talk about. Um, okay. I, I'd love actually to connect you two together because she's someone that could be, she could someone be the answer to some of your challenges here because she's discussed herself in regards to what happens next and what happens to people when they return, especially females, when they return to, yeah. to, to rural and regional spaces where, you know, partner might be on the land, but yeah. you know, what, what does that mean for the, for the female that comes home? So amazing. Yeah. You say that mate, because it's, uh, it, it's so true and comes straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Good to hear. I mean, very happy to chat uh, with her and kind of anyone who's, who's experienced this especially, but also wants to do research in this area because it's definitely something where we're letting people down quite significantly and and letting society down generally because it contributes to increased recidivism, which is no good for anyone. Amazing. Amazing, my friend. Hey, Alicia, how do people get in contact with us, my dear? All right. If anyone wants to reach out or ask any questions, like why does Lucas continue to wear his Halloween costume every day of the year, (laughs) you can find our details on the website, Talking Time Podcast com.au that has all links to our previous episodes um, and all of our other contact details there or jump on facebook or messenger um, talking time with lucas and alicia or twitter at time underscore lucas Kyle, my friend thank you so much it's been amazing having you on and, and best of luck with everything and um and hope that new little newborn of yours mate is uh is letting you sleep yeah, a little bit finding pockets here and there. Thanks, guys. Great work you're doing here, honestly. So it's good to see these types of things happening. And yeah, keep up the good work. And thanks for having me on. Mate, anytime, anytime. Leash, I'll see you next week. And um, and mate, I hope you have a good rest of Halloween evening. And you can sit back and um, count the candy. Just remember, mate, Jim uh, tomorrow if you are uh, punching those candies this morning. <laughs> have a good one. See you, mate. See ya. <laughs>